Uh, my name is Mark, and I do work for the seminary, but more importantly, uh, I'm part of this church. Uh, our family and I started coming here last September, so this is my home church, so this is, which is more important than the job that I do. Uh, if you come to church various times or often, you may think that you need to take your phone and turn it off or put it on silent, put it in your purse, I don't have a purse, put it in your pocket, wherever it is, and ignore it during the teaching time. I'm asking you to do the opposite this morning. I want you to take it out. Because at any point during the teaching time at all this morning, there's a number on the screen, uh, you can text any question, any comment, preferably related to what we're talking about. Uh, done this before, it doesn't always work that way. And uh, at the end, I'm going to pull out my phone, see what kind of questions and comments, and I'm gonna, we're going to interact with those live. So kind of like have a Q&A during the end. Uh, so don't wait to the end to do it, because I'll be looking at my phone and there probably will be a delay or whatever. So at any point, text anything, any comment, any question, the number is going to be on the screen the entire time. And then at the end, uh, we'll, there's time set aside to do that. So make sure you do that. It works better if you actually interact. Let me ask you a question, though. When you think of evil, what do you think of? Or who do you think of? And don't just in your mind say Hitler, because that's cheating. That's an easy answer. Put a little more thought into it than that. When you think of evil, what do you think of? Who do you think of? For some of us, uh, that, that question actually might stir up a whole lot of personal pain, because that's not just an abstract concept. Uh, you actually have personally felt and experienced horrible evil. For others of us, that may stir up something we've seen in the news uh, somewhere else, some other country, some other town, our town, wherever it is. Uh, but wherever it is and whatever it is, just take a second and think, what is evil? What comes to mind? Person, uh, a thing, whatever it is. When I think of evil, my mind uh, often goes to uh, prison. I spent about three years in prison and... Uh, there, when you're in prison, there are dark times. There are experiences and things you see and things you hear that, uh, there we go, that uh, are dark and that are evil. I was a chaplain, in case you're wondering. Um, but I'll tell you a funny story. Whenever I have that kind of conversation in a coffee shop or whatever, and we're talking, and I say, mention something, oh, yeah, I spent three years in prison, and people overhear that, you can always see out of the corner of your eye people going, what? And they're a little, the people get nervous, right? Whatever. Anyways, so uh, I spent about three years uh, medium to maximum security prison and could tell you tons of stories of encounters with evil. Uh, just a couple would be, well, just the reality of uh, seeing and hearing uh, demonic voices come out of people as you're talking with them. Uh, not, you know, kind of what, like this, like the real thing. Uh, you're right, you're, you're, you're in prison, you're in a cell with somebody and just that the, the and some of you know this, the change in face, the change in voice and recognizing that what you're hearing actually is a demon speaking to you. Uh, the other, and some of you who are in, in maybe law um, enforcement or corrections, that kind of thing, you'll know uh, that there are certain kinds of crimes, activities that people do, that when you meet those people, you see a deep blackness in their eyes. Unlike anything else, it's dark, it's black, it's empty, it's deep, it's evil. Uh, some of you know that, have seen that. Uh, the unquestionable black evil in some people's eyes. I also remember the one time uh, in, uh, a few years ago when uh, someone in, in town had uh, murdered their wife, wife had been caught 
at the time, basically, and was brought into the prison. They were thrown into a segregation cell, uh, and I was in there just a few minutes after this happened. And so I'm locked up in solitary confinement with a guy who just murdered his wife as all of this stuff is unswirling and, and whatever. And there's just... The reality of evil is so profound and it's so deep. I'm sure if we had time uh, here, you know, wherever else, many of us would have stories, similar kinds of stories. Um, evil is real, but it's not just out there. We've experienced it. Some of you, some of us in our families, personally I felt it in our families, in our circle of friends, uh, evil is real. So how then do we manage to work to follow God, to live, to have families in a world that is so full of evil at times, it seems that way, but also believe that there is a God and that this God is good? It's a massive question. Um, there are lots of ways to kind of go at this question, and we certainly can't do them all this morning. So what I want to do is lay out kind of three assumptions that I'm starting with, just to work with, and then the one question that I do want us to wrestle with this morning. So these are my starting assumptions, just to kind of uh, put everything on the table. The first thing that I assume is that uh, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. But I am free, and you are free at the same time. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Pastor Tim do a great message on this, so I'm not going to repeat any of that. So if you're going, oh, I want to find out more, go on uh, the church website and you can find this. Uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great message, but I'm assuming it's true. I'm assuming that God is sovereign, and I'm assuming that, that uh, evil is real. Or sorry, that I am free, got my words mixed up. The second thing I'm assuming, though, is that evil is real and that God is good and that somehow those two things work together. Now, lots of people have spoken and written on that topic. There's no shortage of people who have done that and some have done an amazing job. That's not the question that I want to talk about this morning. But if you are interested in that, uh, here's a book that came out recently. It's by a Canadian, actually, the director of uh, Apologetics Canada. Andy Steiger is his name. It's called Thinking. Chapter four in this book is really good. So if this kind of if you're going, okay, I, I want to wrestle this through philosophically, maybe apologetically, whatever, and kind of work through that, uh, I'm not doing that this morning. This is a really good book. So check this out, uh, Thinking by Andy Steiger. So, but I'm assuming that those that the reality of evil and the goodness of God are compatible. They do exist somehow. I'll talk about that a little bit more, but really we can spend more time reading that book. And then the third thing I'm assuming is that my own heart is wicked. Uh, I'm assuming your heart is wicked too, by the way. Uh, the reason I say that is verses uh, like, like uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Uh, another one here, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 7. I'll read this to you, and then I'll tell you who it is that's saying it and who it is he's speaking to. This is Mark 7. Oh, I should put these things on so I can actually read what it says. For it is from within... Out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, the list, the long list. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Taken in isolation, that's a very dark picture. It's Jesus speaking. But he's not speaking to a bunch of degenerates from the side of the road. He's speaking to his inner circle of disciples. People who have made massive choices to follow him. Jesus looks at them and says, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. The evil from within your heart, uh, that is what defiles you. 
So that's my third assumption, is that not only is, is evil out there, it's also in here. And that changes how we talk about evil. It's not just something out there that, okay, how can this idea of evil exist and, and there be God? It's also, what about the evil in my own heart? Those are my assumptions, but here's my question. My core question, then, is, is not a philosophical debate about how this all might work together. It's more practical. It's more, how do I live my life uh, in, in a world where evil seems to be everywhere, but I believe that God is good? How? How do I do this? How do you and I do this when we leave this morning and go do whatever it is that we do, have whatever experience that we have? How in the world do we attempt to follow God faithfully in a world that is so full of evil? How do we do that? That's the question for this morning. Now, to do that, we actually need to leave. Uh, there we go. Uh, we need to leave uh, this town. We need to leave this country. We need to leave this climate. We need to leave this time in history. And in your minds, I want you to imagine this 2,600 years ago, and we're in ancient Israel. Uh, some of you may have been to Jerusalem or Israel, and you'll know some of this stuff, and you'll, it'll bring back memories. Others of you haven't. If you haven't in there, let me paint a picture for you. So leave this climate, go to a dry climate, a dry, hot, suffocating in the summer climate. Uh, a lot, everything is, by, is, is um, stone. And uh, go back to, or 2,600 years ago into ancient Israel where uh, the, the temple that we see now really wasn't there, but the older city of David was. And there, there was a prophet walking around called Habakkuk. And people back then and people now go, who? Habakkuk? Never heard of him. And there's actually very little in the Bible, almost nothing in the Bible written about him other than what he wrote. So it's kind of an unknown prophet. But he wrote in the 7th century BCE and uh, during the king of, reign of King Josiah, if you know anything about history, he kind of fits in that conflict or time frame. But he is asking the question. He's looking at a world that is so broken and is experiencing so much evil. And he's saying, God, seriously, are you even real? Look at all that is happening. How can you be a good God and all of this is happening around us? And so Habakkuk is, is a story of him interacting with God, just kind of laying it all on the line, God responding, and then Habakkuk kind of wrestling with that at the end. That's the journey that we're going to go on this morning, is going through Habakkuk. So if you have a Bible, turn to Habakkuk. Uh, if you don't, it'll be on the screen, or if you have your phone, I know you have your phones actually out. Uh, so your phones are out, which is a good thing. So uh, find Habakkuk. And uh, let's read some of this together. And we'll see, we'll start with his complaint. Context is totally different, but you're going to get his heart so quickly. Here's what he says. This is the beginning of Habakkuk. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? And we could stop right there. I'm sure many of us have had that experience, maybe in that experience. God, seriously, I've been calling out for help with whatever, my life, something in my family. Will you not listen? Do you not do anything? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, righteous so that justice is perverted. God, if you are real, where are you? He goes on. Lord, are you not from everlasting? Now he's kind of talking to God and saying, don't you know who you are? Are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God, if you are real, where are you? And then he switches to a bit of a word picture as he's trying to to work all this through. You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net and he gathers them up in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and he enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? And then he kind of switches at the end. I'll stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. In other words, and some of us have been in this spot, you cry out and cry out and you're, God, what is going on? And you finally give up and say, that's it, I'm done. I'm just going to stand here and watch. Are you going to show up, God? Kind of like you're throwing the gauntlet down. God, the ball's in your court. Do something, if you're real. That's Habakkuk's cry. Uh, It's a powerful, powerful experience. But what's fascinating in this story is that God actually responds. And we have a record of this. Uh, And it's fascinating what, what God says. But have you ever asked that question, where are you, God? It's maybe it's some medical thing, some relational thing, a financial thing, someone in your extended family, whatever. And you just go, where are you, God? I'm actually having a hard time believing you're real and that you actually can do anything and that you are good. I know we're not supposed to ask these questions in church, but we ask these questions in our hearts and in our minds, right? That's Habakkuk. That's been me at times. That's, I'm sure that's been many of us at times. But God does respond to this, and it's, it's, it's amazing how he responds um, in what he says and what he doesn't say. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn uh, to to, uh, some of these verses. They'll be on the screen too. But here's where God starts to respond. Two things he says. Look at the nations and watch. So this is God now speaking back to Habakkuk. I've heard you. Now, listen to the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. In other words, what's coming you can't even imagine. Just wait. And then he says something that would have been crazy to Habakkuk. It's confusing to us, so I'll unpack it at the end. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. What Habakkuk has been going? The Babylonians? Now, we don't know this because it's a different world. He would have completely reacted to this idea of the Babylonians because the Babylonians were a massive world power that we know from history, he didn't know this yet, were about to come in and take over the country. Here's a quick little history lesson for those of you who like it. So in the Middle East, Israel is a small little country currently and anciently. And, and, and uh, constantly there were world superpowers who were at that point, forming uh, in modern Iran, Iraq, kind of there, and coming up so-called over the Fertile Crescent into Israel and, and wiping things out and then on their way somewhere else. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians come and they sweep over and they wipe out the northern half of Israel. 
and they carry on. And then in 586, uh, which is after Habakkuk, so he didn't know this yet, the Babylonians come and they wipe out the Assyrians and wipe out everybody else. And then the Persians come and then the Greeks come and then the Romans come. Those of you who know history know how all this endless cycle of, of everything happens. And here's this poor little Israel caught in the middle. And Habakkuk is, is aware of this. I mean, they maybe don't have all the, the high-speed communication that we have, but they know what's going on around the world. And he's crying out to God to, for help. And God says, yeah, I'll bring help. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why in the world would you bring the Babylonians? I'll tell you why in a second, but here's the first thing that we can draw from this. And that is that God always works in and through the good and the bad of history. God doesn't just work in the good stuff. I was a pastor for 10 years before we moved down here and uh, so did a number of funerals and memorials and there's a various kinds of experiences. Some memorials are actually really good. You're celebrating somebody who has lived for 80 plus years, a long walk with Jesus, made a huge difference in people's lives and they're actually, you're celebrating their passing from this world to the next and, and yes, we're sad, but it's actually a, it's a good thing. Um, those are an amazing kind of experience. I've also done memorials, uh, for example, a six-year-old girl who has a heart attack all of a sudden and her mom and her dad and her older brother are in my office just weeping, having no way to put this together and figure it out. And I've seen God work powerfully in both those situations, in the good and in the bad. And I often have to remind myself that I can't fall into the trap of things are going well, so God must be active. Things are going poorly, so God must not be active. God is active in and through the good things and the bad things of history. Habakkuk was about to find that, find that out. We can find that out in our own lives. But God goes on. Here's what he says next. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with this. In other words, I want this to be clear. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do very well at waiting. Just being honest, I'm sure you're not the only people like, I'm not the only person like that. But here's God saying, I see the injustice. I know what's going on. Not only uh, am I at work in ways you can't see, there's actually a bigger picture and the timing might not be the timing that you're expecting. Now, if you've ever been a parent or if you've ever been a kid, which is probably most of us in the room here, uh, you know, from a kid perspective, from a child perspective, you're always focused often, and I was too, on the immediate context. What's happening here? What's happening next week? What's happening with this class that I'm taking? Whatever. And parents are often saying, whoa, 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 hang on, slow down. There's a bigger picture. If you, you know, here's a goal to aim for, so you've got to do it. Well, what's just the next step now? We're always short-sighted, right? And parents are always pulling kids back to say there's a bigger picture that you may not see, but it's actually really important. There's more stuff going on. This is what God is doing here. He's looking at, at Habakkuk and he's saying, hang on, there's a much bigger picture than what you can see. I am at work. Even though it feels like there's nothing going on and you're kind of lingering in this spot of whatever, there is a plan. There is something at work and it's, it, it, um, it will not delay. Now the key in this, and this is one of the tricks to a relationship with God, it's God's definition of delay, not my definition of delay. Because my definition of delay is right now. It took a second, okay, it's delayed. Right? Like it's just, where is it? Where is it? God's is not like that. Sometimes God acts quickly in our mind. Sometimes he acts longer. It takes longer. 
But he is saying in his timing, it won't delay. But what's really fascinating in this whole story is actually what happens next. So Jacob, Habakkuk complains, God responds, and then we have a record of what Habakkuk does at the end. And it's not so much what he says, although it is, it's when he says it. So let's, let's read this together. And I'll tell you why this is so significant in my mind. This is, now, this is Habakkuk uh, praying. So he's complained. God has replied. They've had this. They've wrestled through stuff. And now it's a, his prayer. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then if you jump a few verses down to verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to the nations invading us. Now listen to this part. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, in other words, everything still sucks, Nothing has changed. I'm still in this horrible context. We're still being oppressed. My reality hasn't changed. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. When Habakkuk wrote this, we look back at history and we know how it unfolded. We know that justice came. We know what happens next. Habakkuk didn't know that. But his attitude, his heart, internally, everything changed because of his interaction with God. And he said, even though nothing has changed, and he starts listing. I think it's funny. He's listing to God all these things. Dunk, dunk, like God doesn't know, right? But just a reminder, God, nothing has changed, but I'm still going to wait patiently. I still will trust you. You're still my Savior. A few years ago, um, we, were, we took a family vacation um, and while we were at a lake, we heard about a waterfall that had a cave behind it. And we thought, oh, fun, let's go for this walk and find, this ca- or find the waterfall and go behind the cave. And so, um, oh yeah, there's my question. Uh, if, you know, will you trust God in the messy times? I hope you will. Uh, but I'll come to back in uh, just a second because uh, I want to tell you a story that captures that. And so we knew there was this waterfall that had a cave behind it. And so we went there and we found it. Uh, I can't remember exactly. I'm going to guess our girls were six and eight, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, so, I, so I said to Emily, our oldest, I said, so do you want to come climb up behind the waterfall with me and we'll find this cave? Because that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I'd like to. Oh, no, I don't because it's scary, right? And you, if you ever stood under a waterfall, you know uh, how they kind of look kind of cool and romantic far away. Underneath them, the water is just pounding. It's loud, right? You, your eyes are closed because it's so much water going. It's pounding. It's loud, whatever. And so Emily looked up at this, and, and she was scared. She, wanted, she was torn. She wanted to go there, but she was totally scared about this experience. And how am I going to, I don't want to do it and whatever. And I tried to talk her into it, tried to use logic. That didn't work. I have teenage girls. Logic never works. I've accepted that. And... Um, so some of you know, some of you are mad at me now, whatever. Uh, anyways, and so I simply said, I, went, I took a couple steps, steps ahead and I reached my hand back and I said, Emily, just take my hand. So she reached out her hand, grabbed mine, and we started climbing up this waterfall. As we get closer, of course, right, you're, you're hunched over. The wa- her eyes are closed. My eyes are closed, right, because it's just loud. It's pounding. Nothing had changed. That waterfall was still intense and dark and scary and loud and cold. But she took my hand, 
and we walked up, climbed up this place into this cave that was behind there. Uh, I found out then at that point that I'm six feet tall. The cave was only five feet tall. So I stand up. Oh, and I'm still, here's my daughter. I'm trying not to look like I just cracked my head because my daughter's right there. Anyways, this whole drama. But we did all this and then we were able to come down from there and had an amazing experience simply because Emily was willing to take my hand and trust me and follow me. And the exact thing, same thing is true with us and God. In the midst of chaos, a crashing waterfall, whatever your life situation is, are you willing to reach your hand out, take God's hands, whose hand is already directed towards you, and he's saying, just trust me. Are you and I willing to take his hand and follow him? even in the middle of the chaos. I think there are very, that sounds like a great thing to say, but how do we actually do this in real life? Let me suggest that there's, there's five ways uh, that we can actually do this, kind of five um, steps. This isn't meant to be a formula, but five uh, things that we can do to get to the point where we can trust God. Because for some of us, that's a really hard thing to do. Trust, period, is really hard. Never mind trusting in God. Uh, some of, for some of us, that's a really hard question or really hard reality. So if you're wrestling with where are you, God, because of something that's happened in your life uh, or around you or whatever, here are five, um, five kind of steps that we can do. And the first one is this. Uh, I'm just kind of calling it express. Express that fear. Express that frustration to God. Um, be vulnerable. Say in, verbally, in writing, God, where are you? Like, don't keep it stuffed up inside. Actually express it. God can take it, right? There's anything I learned over the years that I can kind of throw anything at God. God can take it. So verbalize it. Express it to God. However, maybe you're a painter. Maybe you're a poet. Maybe you just, you know, want to just blah, verbally say, whatever it is, what, however you have to do it, express that frustration to God. Second thing I would say is read. And by read, I mean read five psalms. Uh, the psalms are amazing pictures of people wrestling with God and reality and how it all fits together. I'm saying read five because it's just a good number. Make two of those, though, Psalm 10 and Psalm 73. You and I are not alone when we wrestle with evil and God and good. Psalm 10 and Psalm 73 are amazing Third, I would say remember. Remember what God has done in your life. And if you're going, I don't have any history with God, then pick up the Bible and remember what God has done in the Bible. There, is, there are literally, since time began, history of God being faithful and strong and powerful and just. Remember those stories. If you've never read them, read them now. Remember what God has done in your own life. And then the fourth thing I would say is Pray. Which sounds nice. Uh, for some of us, praying is an easy thing to do, to do. For others of us, praying just seems so fake and hollow because I'm just saying words I don't even know if they're true. I would encourage, I'm kind of being blunt this morning, but whatever. Uh, I'm in, uh, even if it feels fake to begin with, I would say still pray prayers of trust toward God because if you keep doing it, God can actually change our hearts. He can change our minds. And even though you kind of go, I don't even know if I believe this, express that trust. God can change our hearts. And the day will come when you're saying that, it actually is coming from deep within inside your heart. And you're, like, it's so true and so real to you. So don't think just because you don't feel something when you pray that it's not a valid way to pray. Keep doing it. And then the fifth step, repeat 
as often as needed. Just keep doing that. Keep doing that. We live in a crazy world, but we serve an amazing God, a powerful God who is good, who does break into history, who has a bigger picture, who is faithful, who is reaching his hand out, just like I was to my daughter. All we have to do is accept, hold the hand, and follow him, and it will change everything. I'm going to pull out my phone here and see what kinds of comments and questions everybody has. And if I don't get yours, uh, and there's a ton here, so I'm not going to get yours, uh, but I will read some of these. What is our role as Christ followers in confronting the wickedness around us? It's a great question. Uh, so that's less the, you know, how do I wrestle with the experience of God or evil? How do I do that around me? Um, one of the, you, some of you will know this, others of you may not. You're attending a Mennonite Brethren Church. Uh, so one of the, one of the uh, convictions of the Mennonite Brethren community is not pacifism, in case you're wondering. If you're thinking that, you're misguided. It's actually peacemaking. That's what our confession says. Peacemaking is active involvement in the world uh, to bring peace into situations around us. So what are we supposed to do as followers of Christ? We actually are supposed to be actively involved. Uh, we don't use violence and force or whatever, uh, but we don't just sit around and watch. We get involved. We bring peace, relational peace, political peace, whatever it is. So as followers of Christ, we actually are called to engage in the world around us and bring peace. Um, to have a specific conversation would take forever about some of the, the ways we can do that, but it would be in your context. Um, ah, our feelings sometimes lie to us. Yes, they do. We may feel like God is nowhere, and then actually the rest of the text cut out, so I don't know where the rest of that thing went. Uh, but our feelings, yes, absolutely lie to us. Uh, and sometimes we do feel like God is nowhere, as I think Habakkuk was feeling, right? He's looking around, looking at the circumstances, God, where are you? But regardless of, our, our feelings don't change reality, the, which is a great statement, looks good in a piece of paper. The problem is our experience is our feelings, right? So we have to get to the point of, of reconciling those two. One of the best ways to do that, there's two really good ways to do that. One is to be part, and this is going to sound like a sales pitch for the church. One is to be part of a healthy church that is focused on God, that worships God, that has God as front and center. And as you're a part of that, you'll actually find, I will find, our hearts turn toward God. And, our, and actually that, that, I was going to say trumps our feelings, but I know we're not supposed to say Trump anymore. It overpowers our feelings. And... Uh, and it overrules that, and our feelings can change. It also goes back, I think, to the point I was making about prayer. Uh, praying, that pattern, a rhythm of spiritual health and prayer will actually start to change our feelings as well. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Uh, how to deal with the evil in my own heart? <laughs> well, the bad news is you can't. You are utter, I and you are utterly helpless to deal with the blackness, the evil in our own hearts. Period. Next sentence, Jesus can and has dealed with the blackness and the evil in our own hearts. You and I, if you hear my voice, you are in desperate need of a savior who died for your sins, who died because of the blackness and evil in your heart, who can set you free from that. How do you deal with evil in your heart? How do I deal with it? By... Uh, by unashamedly, unreservedly coming to Jesus and saying, I am a broken, helpless person who is eternally lost. I need you as my savior. You are my only hope. And then once that happens, 
then everything magically gets better. No, it doesn't. We still struggle with sin, right? And that carries on. So how do we work with that? Because that also may be behind that question. That's the problem with questions, right? You can't really see the context. Behind that question may be, okay, I do follow Jesus. I have given my life to him, but I still struggle with this. Yes, you do. And you will until the day you die, and so will I. And that's why we continually need to be uh, submissive to God, uh, submissive to his spirit around other Christians, a pattern of spiritual health and constant repentance and renewal. And God forgives every single time. That's the amazing thing. Uh, if, you, if you're, I, I had a, a professor years ago, uh, and it was a, kind of a cheesy title. He gave a talk, How to Sizzle When You're Fizzled. And maybe it's because it's so cheesy that I remember it, I don't know. But he had a, a kind of a, if, if you imagine there's a, like a kind of a continuum, at the top is super Christian, right? So whoever that is, someone who goes to church every Sunday, you know, brings their Bible, whatever. I mean, whatever, whatever idea we would have is super Christian, which doesn't exist, by the way. Uh, but whatever that is, and at the bottom you had someone who, uh, no faith, or just, we would look, you, you kind of go, well, that's a pretty weak Christian. Now, of course, that doesn't really exist, right? And he's making a point. But if you have this imaginary continuum, super Christian, Boy, that's a person with weak faith. Faith. His point was, God doesn't really care where you are on that continuum, if it exists. He really cares which way you're facing. Because you can be way up here, coming to church every single Sunday, on the whatever committee, doing whatever, doing all the stuff, and your heart is actually facing away from God. Or you can be way down here, having whatever experience, doing whatever stuff, but your heart is actually turned toward God. That's what God wants. That's how we get to transformation. So the key to, to uh, working with evil in your own life isn't to suddenly or somehow think that mental power or whatever will change it, although we do need to do practical steps. It's to keep your heart soft and open toward God and recognize that you desperate, you and I desperately need him to transform us, and God does transform us. I want to sneak in one more question. Is that okay? If I, uh, why am I asking? I am doing it. Um, okay. Do I believe that demons are real? Yes. There, how's that for a short answer? But here's, our, here's what we get, I believe, for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, they're described in the Bible very clearly. History would show that they're real. Personal experience would show that they're real. Uh, but here's one thing we need to remember when we come to demons and Satan and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's sometimes we in the West and other cultures can fall into the trap thinking that somehow Satan and God are battling things out and they're equals that we're not sure who's going to win. That is a complete lie. Totally false. Satan, demons are down here, angels, whatever, they're doing some sort of battle, however that works. We don't really understand how that works, but it does. God is up here. There is no mystery about how things are going to end or who is stronger or will, or will Satan or demons do something. Uh, God is up here overpowering absolutely everything. So yes, demons are real, but they are not as powerful as what God is, not even close. And then you put us underneath, we're even weaker, but the reason we're okay is because... God lives in us when we give our lives to him. Um, so yes, do I believe demons are real? Absolutely. But I believe that God is realer, if that's a word, and stronger. That's <laughs> whatever. Anyways, so that being said, uh, I'm looking at the time. Lots more questions. Maybe we can talk after. But um, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, 
I thank you that as we've actually sung this morning that you are a good, good father and that you are the great I am. Uh, What an amazing collection of songs we've been singing this morning, God. Uh, And they are so true. And I thank you that that is real. And I thank you for the hope that that gives us as we live in a world that is broken and evil. Um, So many good things happen in this world, but there is evil as well. Uh, And God, I just ask that when you look at us, that you break into our lives in the ways that you need to break into us, our lives and bring deliverance, bring healing, cause us, as one of the questions said, to, uh, to deal with the wickedness around us and to, and to actually to be peacemakers. Uh, but we can't do any of this without your spirit, God. We are totally, desperately dependent upon you. So invade this place, invade our lives, work powerfully in our midst, uh, God. And we have total trust in you because you are a good father. Amen.